Turn to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. And I finally remembered reading glasses so I can see what I'm doing now. Maybe. John chapter 18. Believing is not reacting. I try to figure out how to do this, maybe put quotes around not reacting to, so that it, because it, it could, you could read it, believing is not reacting or believing is not reacting. And that may sound the same to you, but it doesn't in my head, but there are a lot of things in my head. So, uh, but, but the title is Believing is Not Reacting. Like that's the thing, not reacting. So we're going to look at that this morning, John chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. But first, our memory verse that I practiced this week. Let's see uh, if I got any better at it. Let's say it together. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. John 15, 5 and 8. I didn't even stumble. Good job, y'all. And Michael. And throw my shoulder out, patting myself on the back. John 18, 11, Believing is not reacting. Truth to believe, and, and I'm, I'm looking forward, I haven't started working on next week's sermon yet, but it's, it's the, really the, the whole reason for this series title. There's been a, t- a lot of talk about belief and only a little bit about truth. We've got John, teen four, John 14, 6, uh, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and, and, and I guarantee you we're going to talk about that some more next week, but next week is the conversation with Pilate that ends with the question and and doesn't get answered. I mean, it does on the cross. What is truth? We're going to talk about that next week, and I'm looking forward to it. But we got to get there first. This morning, we're in the garden. It was the morning for them, too. Uh, Early morning, late night. They're in the garden. And folks show up. The disciples are probably surprised. But why? Jesus has been clear throughout his three years what his purpose was and and what was coming, what was going to happen. Let's recap some of this. Matthew 12, 40, he says, I will be three days in the ground same way Jonah was in the whale. Well, I don't know what they thought that meant if not death of some kind. Matthew 16, verses 21 through 23, also in Mark 8, 31 through 32, and Luke 9, 21 through 22, he predicts that he will be handed over to sinful men. And Peter takes him to the side. Go back and read it. Jesus, uh, or Peter goes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, come here a minute. Maybe he didn't say it that way, but that's kind of what I envisioned. Come here, because it's a rebuke. Isn't that what we do with our kids? Get over here. Let me tell you. That's, that's the tone. Jesus, get over here. Let me tell you, that is not going to happen. And Jesus' response was, get behind me, Satan. Whew. You never want to be called Satan or a messenger of Satan. 
And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Now, it was, it, it, the, the temptation was there. That, that goes back, and this is a whole sermon right here, and I'm not going to preach it right now, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. It goes back to what Satan offered at, 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 at Jesus' temptation. Hey, if you'll just bow down to me, all this is yours. Meaning, if you just, if you just shortcut this, you don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to go, go through all that. I'll give it all to you. Get behind me, Satan. Jesus, what do you mean? That never happened. Get behind me, Satan. This is what I am here to do. Matthew 17, also in Mark 9, also in Luke 9. He says, I'm going to die. I'm going to the cross. And the the disciples are confused. But it says they don't ask any questions. They don't know what he's talking about, but they don't seek any sort of clarification. Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 20, Mark 10, Luke 18. He says it again, and, and, and the passage in some places actually says the meaning was hidden from them. So he said it, but they don't get it. Matthew 27, verses 62 through 64. Uh, after the, the crucifixion, the chief priests and the Pharisees say, uh, y'all remember how he talked about rising from the dead? Go, go put guards in front of the tomb. The chief priests and the Pharisees knew what the prediction was. That's why they put the guards in front of the tomb. John 2, 18 through 22. Now now we're in what we have read. I I intentionally left John out until we got to to this part. Uh, What we've been reading over the past three months. John 2, 18 through 22. He says, uh, this temple will be torn down and then three days later it will be raised. Now, John says, they didn't get this. They didn't understand its meaning until after the, the crucifixion, after, after the Holy Spirit led them into all truth. They understood it later, but he said it. John 12, 7 and 8, when uh, the perfume is broken on over his feet, he says, she has anointed me for my burial. John 12, 24 through 27, he says, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies... In John 12, 32, 33, he talks about being lifted up, and the crowd knew exactly what he was talking about. They knew how he was going to die. Crucifixion, because they said, wait a minute, Messiah is not supposed to be killed, right? They understood. The crowds understood. John 13, 33, I will be with you just a little while longer. After all of the predictions of his death, that might have been obvious. John 14, 25, while I remain with you means that Eventually, I won't be here. They knew. They'd been told. Jesus was clear. He was clear about what his purpose was. But then on this night, uh, this early morning, uh, late Thursday night, probably early Friday morning, they're in the garden and this mob comes. And the disciples see this mob as a shock and the end of things. This is a tragedy in the making. They know it. We know it because of Peter's reaction. They look up and they see this and this was not their plan. This is bad news. And they react. And that brings us to our big idea this morning. Our reaction to the difficulty of the moment is inversely proportional 
to our belief in the ability of our Savior. Now, use math terminology. Back up just a second, Pat. Go back to that slide, please, ma'am. I used math terminology, and I looked it up to make sure I was right. I thought I was, but y'all know. I ain't, ain't no guarantees with math and me. Our reaction to the difficulty of the moment is inversely proportional to our belief in the ability of our Savior. The more reactionary we are, the, the more out of control we feel as that goes up, it is due to the inverse proportion of our belief in the, the ability of our Savior. The more we believe in Jesus' control, the less we react. But the less we believe in his control, the more we react. Not respond. Every situation usually requires some kind of response, and that response may be to do nothing, but that is still a response. But a reaction, especially a, an overreaction, is something that happens at the spur of a moment because, hey, this is happening, i got to do something. And this is the first thing I thought of, so that's what I want to do. Our reaction is inversely proportional to our faith and our belief in the ability of our Savior. Remember, he said this moment was coming. There should have been no shock to it. At the very least, even if they were surprised at the moment, it should have been, oh, that's right. Well, let's see what the passage says because it makes it clearer for us as we work through it. Chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. After Jesus had said these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas took a company of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees and came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to them, Who is it that you are seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they answered. I am he, Jesus told them. Judas, who betrayed him, was also standing with them. When Jesus told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, who is it that you're seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. I told you I am he, Jesus replied. So if you're looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the words he had said, I have not lost one of those you have given me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. At that, Jesus said to Peter, put away your sword. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? And that question's left open-ended. Of course, we know the answer. We know what he did, but it stops there in this accounting. So they get to the, the garden, and these folks show up, and what the disciples see is a situation that looks insurmountable. They've gone over to the, the, uh, to the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, across the Kidron Valley, and if we read the other Gospels, we know why they were there. They were praying. Now, John 
It, it, it works if you, you have to insert other Gospels, like literally sometimes in the middle of John's sentence. But they went over. Uh, he probably taught them along the way. It's a good guess that the, uh, the, the teaching of John 14, 15, and 16 were as they walked, they got to the garden, and they prayed as we see, or slept, as the case may be, uh, as we see in the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then we come to this point here. John just, those other things didn't suit his purpose. Didn't mean they didn't happen. Uh, doesn't mean there's any confusion. It's just those aren't the events he chose to record, as he tells us at the end of his book, that there's so much he didn't record, it, 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 don't worry about it. But this situation looks like something that, that, that's just, it's, it's, it's bad. It, it's it, it's going to, this is not going to end well, the disciples know. Uh, first of all, we have treachery from the inside. Jesus knew it. He knew it was Judas. He knew what Judas was going to do. But nonetheless, it's, it, treachery from the outside is expected. Treachery from the inside for Jesus was expected, but not for the disciples. Can you imagine the emotions they felt when they see this group come up and Judas is in front? They didn't know what he left for when he left the upper room during the Last Supper. It says in one of the Gospels, they thought he had to go pay for the room or the food or something, just taking care of some financial matters because he took care of the, the money. But this is from the inside, from members of the group. And that is the worst betrayal. The worst betrayal. Members of the church betraying other members of the church. And in Judas's case, and often in churches, he was never saved. He, he, he did not know Jesus. He hung out with him, rubbed shoulders with him, spent time with him, didn't know it. And he leads this group. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. See, he knew where Jesus was going to be. Because they went there as a family, as friends, as, as teacher and disciples. This is where Jesus often took them to get away, quiet of the city. Back then, the, the city was on this mountain. You went down across the, the Kidron Valley and crossed this brook that only had water in it during the winter, during the rainy season, and then you went up to this other mountain, and it was, so it was away from the city, quiet, probably cooler, the, the shade of the, the trees, the olive grove. Judas knew. He knew where to find him. He, he knew where to stab in the back. Again, you can imagine the disciples. Judas, this is where this is our place. This is, this is where we come. And you're going to do this here. He brings this group. This is a company of soldiers. Depending on who you read, that, that, that word, a company, could mean anywhere. Actually, usually means 1,000 soldiers. Uh Estimates say, and we really have no uh, reason to, we, we have no way of knowing 
But we have other uh, extra-biblical literature that talks about these groups at this time, and usually it ran from about four to 600. So if we, even if we just estimate and we round, let's say 500 men, soldiers, Roman soldiers, the elite soldiers of the world at this time, to arrest one man? It's a ridiculous number of people, all armed, it says, lanterns, torches, and weapons. That's, they, they come like they are coming for a group of people. And maybe they thought they were. They may have thought they were going to have more uh, protest than they had. Not only is it, is it Rome that's here represented, but it says also uh, some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. So he is getting this condemnation, this treachery from uh, local, civil, uh, and religious authorities. It's insurmountable. The disciples looking at this are going, there's, there's, there's no way out of this. Rome is here, Israel is here, everybody is against Jesus at this point, everybody. And then we're going to see even his disciples run away, even the ones that in just a few minutes are going to take a bold stand, a misinformed bold stand, but a bold stand, just an hour or two later isn't going to take a stand again going to deny that he knows Jesus. To get through the rest of this message, we've got to see the hopelessness of this moment. There is no getting out of this. There's no way around this. There's no happy ending to this moment from a human perspective at this time. Yeah, I know what happens later. I know the purpose. Jesus knows the purpose. I'm getting there. But just let's put ourselves in the position of one of the disciples right then. This is the end of Jesus and maybe even the end of me as a disciple. Of course, we know the end. We know the next statement. It's not hopeless. It's not insurmountable because Jesus has the awareness. Verse 4, Then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to them. I'm just going to focus on that first half first. at first. Then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him. None of this was a shock and a surprise. None of it was insurmountable or hopeless because Jesus knew all of it that was going to happen. We may know what's coming in our lives. We may know what's next. Maybe we, we know that um, we haven't paid our taxes for 20 years and we just got a letter from the IRS saying, hey, we noticed you haven't paid your taxes for the last 20 years. We know what's coming, a very large bill that we're going to have to pay. Or something, you, you, you know, but, but that still may be a hopeless situation. But for the Son of God to know what's happening next, it's never, it's never hopeless. Jesus was aware. All those verses I talked about, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and the 
verses in John, the entire gospel story makes clear Jesus knew what was going to happen and was aware. This verse tells us explicitly, and Jesus was aware of everything that was going to happen to him. And there he stood in the garden that Judas knew about. Jesus knew Judas was going to go to the leaders. Jesus knew they were going to bring a, a, a troop of 700 or 500 soldiers. Jesus knew Judas was going to interrupt their prayer time, their prayer meeting. He knew it all. Even in his though even though he was limited by his choice in his humanity God had made clear to him, had told him, this is what's going to happen. Jesus knew. And when I say limited by choice, just to remind you that I don't think Jesus was in any way not God. He was completely fully God, but he temporarily set aside the free use of his divine attributes when he incarnated, when he became human. So that, as an example, when the lady touches the hem of his robe, he can turn and say, who touched me? He knew power went out. He didn't know who did it. He wasn't lying. He really didn't know because God did not see fit to reveal that to him because Jesus had set aside the free use of his divine attributes. So at this point, he knows this because the Father has revealed it to him. He knows everything that's going to happen. He's not limited in his knowledge because God told him, you know what? Jesus is not in any way limited in his knowledge now because he has taken back the free use of his divine attributes. Once he ascended into heaven, so seated at the right hand of the Father, he knows everything. Jesus is just aware today of everything that will happen as he was that day. You've got to remember that we're building here. Bad situation but Jesus was aware that it was going to happen. And then we see, not only was he aware, but we see that he was in control. Jesus has the awareness. Jesus has control. Then Jesus went out and said to them, listen to that. They come to the garden. Maybe they couldn't get in all 600 of them, 500 of them, whatever. Maybe there was a gate, and it just wasn't easy to get in uh, for all those men to get in. So Jesus goes and meets them. Y'all, I'm going to give away the end. Jesus doesn't wait for us to hit our bad situation. Jesus goes and meets the situation before we ever get there. He's already there. Whatever you are going through or about to go through, Jesus is already there. He went out and he met them. He takes the initiative because he is in control. They have him because he wants them to have him. He said to them, who is it you're seeking? And then in verse 7, he said again, who is it you're seeking? And then in verse eight and, verses 8 and 9, 
He says, so if you're looking for me, let these men go. Who's in control here? Judas? Nope. 600, 500 Roman soldiers? Mm Mm-mm. Chief priests, servants of the chief priests, Pharisees? Nah. Jesus is in control every step of the way. Every moment of this is planned and harnessed by Jesus. Nothing's going to slip out of lane here. Nothing's going to go awry. Nothing is going to happen that wasn't supposed to happen because Jesus is aware of everything that will happen and he is in control as it happens. They have him right where he wants them. Not a moment too soon, not a moment too early. The fullness of time had come. My hour has come. Now is when. Not all those times in the temple. Not when he slipped away. Not when they were all confused like, where did he go? Oh my goodness. None of that because that wasn't his time. Now is the time because he controls the time. Incidentally, don't forget, he also has control over the angels. Even at this moment, he could have broken his cover for, uh, uh, for lack of a better term. He could have instantly taken back the free use of his divine attributes, called the angels and beamed him up, Scotty, and he's gone. He could have gotten away that easily. He tells them in another gospel when he doesn't tell us who cut off the ear or who attacked, but he says, couldn't I have called, I'm just going to say, all the angels I needed here? I don't need you to defend me. I've, I've got this completely under control and his control doesn't just extend to his situation right then don't miss this disciples of Jesus his control also extends to the safety and the security of his disciples he commands safety for his disciples first imperative in this verses 1 through 11 he speaks to the mob so if you're looking for me let these men go And I don't really think there was a discussion among the mob about whether they would or not. I think when Jesus made the command, because I've skipped a little part, but we're going back to it, there was no doubt, we ain't touching those guys. Absolutely not. Jesus knew what was going to happen to the disciples too. He knew they were going to scatter. He knew that John was going to get them access into the courtyard during the trial. He's already told Peter, for the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. This is after Peter said, I'd never deny you, I'll die for you. It was not their time because he had decreed that it was not their time. Let these men go. Jesus was in control. He never lost control. He has never lost control. And for all you English people, he will never, that's all the tenses, he will never lose control. In verses 5 and 6, we see that Jesus also has the power. He has the awareness, he has the control, but he also has power. He says, who is it you're seeking? I'm in control of the situation. Tell me, who are you looking for? It's dark. 
You know, they don't have lights going. They've got their torches, but chances are Jesus and uh, the disciples didn't. It's Passover, so it should have been the full moon at this point, or, or within a night or two of the full moon. So it would have been a little bright out there, but still, which one of you are you looking for? Tell, tell, me, tell me the name of the guy you are seeking. And they say, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Nazarene. And he says, I am he. And once again, Jesus speaks the covenantal name for himself. In Greek, not Hebrew, but it obviously carries the force and the power. I am. We're looking for Jesus. Who are you looking for? Jesus. I am. All sorts of theological implications there, but let's just, let's just say and move on. Jesus is saying, I'm God. I'm not just Jesus you're looking for, I'm God. And we see that because of what happens next. It says Judas is with them. That John wants to make sure you understand. Jesus, uh, Judas did not switch sides all of a sudden. He's not over here safe. He is with this group of 500 and however other many. And when Jesus says, I am he, they fall at the power of the name, of the covenantal name of God. Uh, they fall at the power of the one whom Jesus represents. They can't help themselves. No, it's not a, oh, oh, it was God? Well, let's all take a knee. No, 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 no. They fall. They are out because of the name of Jesus, because of the name of God. There's power in that name. Just the mere speaking of it. Not you. Yes, we have some power in speaking the name. It's, it's why we pray in the name of Jesus. But we don't have Jesus' power in speaking the name. It is a powerful name for us. It is a powerful name of defense for us. But it is a powerful name of offense for Jesus. He speaks the name and they can't handle it. So what are the disciples worried about? What's their concern? They're seeing all this, right, in real time. We, we get to stand here and talk about it. But they're standing there behind Jesus. Maybe some of them get a little further and further behind him. And they hear him say, who are you looking for? Looking for Jesus. I'm he. Boom, and they see all 600 fall down. I think... That leads to some of the boldness that we're going to see here in just a second from Peter. But what it does tell us is that nothing is going to happen. They, the mob, are going to do nothing that Jesus doesn't want them to do. He's got the control, but he's also got the power. And those two, things, those two are sides of the same coin. But it is his power that allows him to control. And it is control that gives him the power. And that's probably also why, when we get to the end of this passage, there are no repercussions for Peter. The mob doesn't turn on Peter. Well, why? Because Jesus has told them, let them go. So that has been established by the time Peter does what he does. Okay, so Jesus has the awareness. He knows what's going to happen. 
He has the, uh, what did I leave out? No, that's right. He has the control. So he's got it all in his hand. And he has the power, so whatever he says is going to happen. And now we come to Peter, who has the reaction. Remember, believing is not reacting. And Peter reacts. It is an overreaction. It is certainly not a thoughtful response. And yes, folks, I understand. I get it. Uh, That would have been the gut response, the gut reaction of most of us. But as Jesus makes clear, this was completely unwanted, unwarranted, and unnecessary. Jesus didn't want him to do it. But Michael, Jesus is in control of all of it. Mm Mm-hmm. I know. So, you're going to have a reformed conversation with somebody. Well, obviously God wanted that to happen because he made... No, we're we're just going going to make clear. When Jesus turns around and says, rebukes him, put your sword away, it is clear that that was not a part of the, the grand plan. It was a part of Jesus or God, I would say, working everything for good. But that was not what was supposed to happen. Jesus' defense was not supposed to be a part of what they were doing that morning, that early morning. It wasn't necessary. It was unwarranted because Jesus was in control. Jesus had the power. Peter, you with your one sword against the 500? Really? Do you think that one through? No. And it was unnecessary because it didn't stop anything. It wasn't going to stop anything because Jesus' hour had come. The fullness of time had come. It was time for him to be crucified, and there wasn't anything that was going to get in the way of that. Why did Peter do this? Well, quickly, let's look at a few things. One, a lack of listening. I just told you all the things, all the times Jesus said, this is exactly what's going to happen. Peter had no clue about what Jesus was doing right here in this moment. One author I read said that Peter had little comprehension of the passion of Jesus. It's a nice way of saying he didn't have a clue. He, he didn't know what was going on. It was, this is not right. Right? Go back. Get over here, Jesus. You are not going to let that happen. Get behind me, Satan. He had no clue what Jesus was there for. And, and maybe Peter, I, I, this is extra biblical, the Bible doesn't say it, I'm just thinking through my own emotions as I read what Peter does here. I know I would have been thinking, oh yeah, Jesus thinks I'm going to deny him tonight. Whoom! Wasn't a lightsaber, but it sounded like it anyway. Uh-huh. Some denial, huh, Jesus? I don't know if he was, I would have thought that. But he pulls out the sword and he swings it. Not just a lack of listening, there's a lack of praying. We know that from the other gospels, they had just spent quite a bit of time in prayer. And three different times, Jesus had said, pray with me. Well, twice he said, pray with me. And then the third time he comes back and said, you just couldn't do it, could you? Instead of praying, they were sleeping. Y'all, as believers, instead of praying, we were, and you fill in the blank. 
But that's one of the reasons Peter reacted instead of responded. He had not spent the last few hours praying. Jesus had. Jesus had been getting everything set spiritually for what was about to happen physically. And he was ready. I prayed it up. I tried to pray it out. It's not going anywhere. I'm drinking the cup. Bring on the cup. Bring on the mob. And, and quite possibly, as, as the Gospels portray it, Jesus goes over to him and says, you couldn't, have, you couldn't even sleep, stand with, sit with me one hour. The spirit was willing, the flesh is weak. Get up, my betrayer is at hand. So, have you ever been woken up in the middle of the night, especially if you'd only been asleep for an hour or two and you were just flat exhausted by that time? And somebody says, get up, get up, we gotta go, come on, come on. And you, you, what? You, 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 okay, I'm up, I'm up, but where, who am I and who are you? And Brain fog. I'm certain that played a part in it. But he was in a brain fog because he wasn't in prayer. Uh, Peter's experiencing an excess of emotion. That is very common for Peter. He was known for uh, speaking first and thinking later. Right? You'll never, uh, we'll never let you be betrayed. Get behind me, Satan. Let me, you know, when Jesus was washing their feet before the Last Supper, and he said, you're not going to wash my feet. He was a real humble guy, you know. He was, oh, no, you're Jesus, I'm not, you're not washing my feet. If, you don't wa- if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. Oh, well, then not just my feet, but wash everything. No, Peter, I'm just washing your feet. Just keep the emotions in check. I'll go to the death for you. You'll deny me three times. Peter responds with his emotion. And many of us do. Most of us do at some point. He had an excess of confidence. Peter never thought he was wrong. I mean, we can see this as we uh, even go into the letters where Paul has to write about confronting uh, Peter in uh, Galatians, where, where he writes about it. We read about it in Acts. He writes about it in Galatians. Peter had an excess of confidence as shown by the fact that he pulls his sword on four to six hundred Roman soldiers. Dude, you don't win this. And I think he was okay with that. I think he was perfectly fine at that moment if every sword was pulled on him and he is gone. There's there's a conversation to be had here, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but that there's an idea that we're willing to kill for Jesus, but not willing to die for him. We're willing to go down in a blaze of glory, but not in long obedience that brings on slow persecution. Peter gets it right. that He he gets corrected and he gets brought back in. But right now, he is reacting and overreacting. And the sword was never an option. It was never a part of what Jesus taught. For three years, he never said, and my kingdom will come at the moment that you pull out your swords and take on Rome or Jerusalem or anybody else. That was never a part of his coming kingdom. And at this moment, I have to talk about Luke chapter 22, verses 36 through 38, where Jesus talks about getting a sword. Trade your bag and your sandals for a sword. What was he saying here? 
That passage has been used, I've seen it used like within the last few weeks, and I've used it in the past as uh, Jesus commanding believers to be armed. That now we got a Christian, you ought to buy a gun because Jesus said, if you don't have a sword, buy one. It's not what he's doing. I look, I wanted to make sure I got this as right as I could. So I read nine different sources discussing this passage. Of them, eight said what I'm about to tell you. It's metaphor. It's metaphorical. Jesus never intended them to buy a sword. What's going on? Jesus says, when I sent you out last time, I said, don't take anything. Don't take a backpack. Don't take a purse. Don't take a coat. Coat was important because you slept outside. You had to have that at night. It gets cold in the desert. Doesn't matter how hot it is in the day. It's cold at night. And that was one of the most important things they could have. Don't take any of that. Don't take money because I am going to take care of you when you go out two by two. You'll have it all provided for you. Don't worry about it. Now he says, I told you that, but times are changing. I'm leaving. I am not physically going to be here anymore. And when this all takes place, it's bad enough right now, but when I am, he didn't say all this, but when I am dead, buried, raised, and ascended, and you begin to do the missionary work, It's going to get worse. He has said, you are going to be persecuted. It is going to be bad for you. So no longer is he saying, don't prepare. Now he's saying, prepare. And one of the things you took when you traveled back then was a sword. It had nothing to do with the kingdom. It had everything to do with just being ready to travel roads from... The, the, one of the worst roads from, was from Jerusalem to Jericho, right? The whole story, the Good Samaritan. Bandits, that, that wasn't just a story. Bandits used to line up on that road to take people out. Be prepared for what's coming is, G, is what Jesus is saying. And in that day, you just took a sword when you traveled. He was not saying, y'all, we need swords to take on what's about to happen. We need swords to keep me from being uh, crucified, to, to keep these powers that are against me from taking me. Because when they say in their confusion, well, Jesus, we've got two swords right here. He says, that's enough. And that's not, that's enough swords. Because, again, I'm not great at math, but 500 Roman soldiers and two swords... That's not enough. I got news for you. He could have had 500 disciples, fishermen, tax collectors. Uh, A handful of zealots might have known how to fight. But 500 swords of disciples against 500 swords of Romans still isn't enough. It's not enough swords. That's enough talking about swords, guys. That's enough. I'm about to be crucified. My hour has come. It's exasperation that they were counting swords. And then we see right after this that it proven again the, the rebuke of the sword wielder. Put up the sword. Put your sword away. The second imperative, by the way. Put your sword away. And he heals the ear. 
and the fact that he commanded, leave the disciples alone. All those things prove that bringing a real sword to defend him was not at all what he meant. It's a teaching point, not a command to be armed. Now, I spent the most time on this point. This was not to bash Peter. It's an example, just like much of Scripture. It's an example to show us how close we can be to Jesus and still miss the point. We can take what he says and believe what he says and completely miss what he's saying. Peter was with them every day. He heard all these things and he gets to this moment because inversely proportional to his reaction was his belief that Jesus was in control. And so he had a high level of reaction and a low level of belief. So he pulls his sword. Have y'all thought about this? It was the servant's right ear. And if he's facing Peter, the servant's facing me, if I pull my sword and swing, I'm probably going to get his left ear. The picture, as I see it, is even more of his out-of-control overreaction. He pulls the sword and swings, all in the same motion. And it was probably a little short sword. That's the word that's used. It's almost like a long knife. So he may have even had it up his sleeve or in his coat, and he pulls it and swings. And, and the word there is a part of an ear. It's actually not the whole ear. He, he probably cut like his earlobe off. He's not a warrior, y'all. Not a swordsmith. He's not Inigo Montoya. And yet, he writes two letters that are in our Bible. For a while, he's the leader of the disciples. He ends up not being the leader of the church in Jerusalem. James does. We read on in John, he gets his... Forgiveness is reinstated. Do you love me, Peter? Yeah. Feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? Yeah. Feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? Dang, yeah. Feed my sheep. We can be so close to Jesus and we miss him. And our blind spots can hold us back. I think Peter... God's providence, maybe not, but I'm just going to think he could have been used so much more. He never left Jerusalem. He never went on a missionary journey. Don't get so blinded by your belief in who Jesus is and what he wants that you miss what he's actually saying, that he's got it all under control. All right, moving on. Jesus has the perspective, verse 11. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? Obedience is most important. Not Peter's fight, not that he's not crucified, not any of this. That he is obedient to the Father. It is the only importance. 
drinking the cup he has been giving, given. It was his time to die. It was not the disciples' time to die. And any interference with that is disobedience. Peter is being disobedient because he is interfering with the times and the, the means and the methods and the, the situation that God has ordained that Jesus was aware of and in control of and had power over. And Peter is being disobedient. But obedience is what is most important, and our perspective must be the same. Obedience at any cost, without reaction of selfishness or sinfulness. Because, see, we don't have to worry. Seventh point and final. We don't have to worry. Y'all, we are safe until our mission is done. There is no thing, no person that can come against a a follower of Jesus who is doing God's will until God has decided, Jesus has decided, time to come home, time to come home, girl. We're done. Rest. You've you've heard the story. I I probably mentioned it before. The, uh, The missionaries in Ecuador... I think I may have mentioned this recently. Uh, Jim Elliott and the other guys that were killed by the, the natives there uh, in that area, they had rifles in the plane. They had guns to defend themselves with. As a matter of fact, they didn't want to take them at all. Their mission-sending organization forced them to. They had all the self-defense they needed. But they knew the first bullet that rips through one of the the natives sends that person directly to hell and they will never have another opportunity to share the gospel with that tribe. So they were never going to pull their sword, pull their gun. They sat in the plane, unloaded, unused, while they were all speared to death and left in the river. Because they knew they were safe until the day they, that God said, it's time to come home. You are never more secure than you, when you, than you are when you are in the middle of obedience to God. No weapon formed against you can prosper when you are in the middle of obedience to God. You need no sword, no, no gun, no self-defense, no nothing. You just need to know that Jesus is aware in control, and has all the power. And then you can sit back and be obedient and drink whatever cup comes. But ungodly, unbiblical reactions to life circumstances, overreactions, no matter how right they seem to the world, are always wrong. Common sense national freedoms, none of those have any play in our obedience to God. And the kingdom of God was never to come about at the end of a sword or a gun. That's why the Crusades were wrong. That's why forcing anyone, uh, the Columbus and others that came over and were going to force conversion, that's not the way it works. There is no forced conversion. It was never what Jesus called us to. He called us to obey, be persecuted, and possibly even die for the faith, but never kill for it. 
He knows everything that's about to happen. He knows the situation you're in. He knows how insurmountable it seems. You're facing 500 Roman soldiers at this moment. Jesus knows. You can't take them with your puny little sword. Your puny little overreaction. Put it away. Your reaction will get you nothing. Certainly not in your obedience to Christ. Be obedient. Trust your Savior. Let's get that proportion right. Get your overreaction down. And it doesn't work that way. Get your belief in your Savior up. And your overreaction will go down. Trust Jesus. And see how he takes control of everything in your life. This morning... You need to trust Jesus maybe for your salvation. Believer, you need to trust him for the everyday things. You certainly need to trust him for whatever situation you're going through. But if you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, now is your moment to give your entire life to him. That's what we do as believers. We give our lives to Jesus. We have different phrases. Trust him, give him our heart, give him our life, make him our Lord and Savior. Different ways of saying the same thing. We are no longer our own. We've been bought with a price. We are sacrifices we lay on the altar. See how none of it has to do with us? And it all has to do with Jesus. Because we can't do anything anyway. We are sinners, and the wages of our sin is death. That's what we've earned. That's what we deserve. But we've been given a gift by God of eternal life, overcoming sin, overcoming death. Not because of our sword... Not because of our reaction, not because of our strong will, not because of our emotions, not because of our arrogance, but because we humbly submit to the fact that we can't overcome our sin. We're facing 500 Romans with a toothpick. We're facing our sin with no way to overcome it, except through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's where we have salvation. And that may be your decision today. All of you have a next step to take. Maybe your next step is to trust Jesus as your Savior. Get out of the mob and on to the disciple side. Maybe you're already on the disciple side. But man, you've got that sword greased. Every opportunity, you're ready. What, I'm Metaphorically, I've got my reaction. No. Get your obedience, and then you're ready with the appropriate, proper, God-ordained, Spirit-led response. And watch what God does through you as you're obedient to Him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the example of Peter. Lord, that, that, that it's not the end, that for Peter it was not over, for Judas it was over. He never returned to Jesus. But Peter, for all of his failures and faults and fallings, even over the next couple of hours, he's, he comes back. And you forgive, you reinstate, just like you do for us and will for us. So, Lord, I pray that someone here, that no, no, not someone, that the one or two or three that are struggling with this idea of salvation will come to Jesus today. They will trust him as the one who is aware of their sin, has power over the, their sin, and can control their lives for them as they give it, give it to, to him. 
And Lord, I pray for the believers this morning that need in the midst of this moment of facing the mob or maybe the mob's on the way and they don't even know it yet, that they are ready to respond in faith, knowing you're aware of what's coming, you're in control of it, and you have the power over it. And that we need your perspective. They need your perspective of drinking the cup that we've been given. Lord, it's not easy. That's why we need your Holy Spirit in our lives. That's why you sent your Holy Spirit. When Jesus ascended, the Holy Spirit came and now lives in us to lead us into all truth. To remind us of what Jesus said. And to teach us to be obedient. I pray that we will. In Jesus' name, that we will be obedient. That we will have faith that is greater than our reaction. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we'll take a few minutes to sing, to worship. If you'd like to pray here at the, the stage, make an altar out of these steps, feel free to do so. If you'd like somebody to pray with you, Kirk and Lee, two of our deacons, will be in the back. Chelsea, our children's minister, will be to my left. I'll be over here to the right. We're going to take a few minutes and pray. If you're lost, trust Jesus as Savior this morning. Believer, give up your reaction and move into obedience today. Let's stand and sing and worship Him.